Hello, I'm Scott Soshner. And I'm Evan Novi Williams, and you're listening to the Sportacast. This is what we do. This is a weekly podcast twice a week about the business of sports, where we bring on the biggest names in the industry. And if there are two things that you and I have endeavored to do. They are to educate and to entertain. And you tell me, Scott, is that the right order? Is it the other order? I feel like sometimes we are heavier on the entertain and sometimes we're heavier on the educate. I like to think that people take away from 25 minutes with us a a healthier education of what is going on in the business of sports. We try to put things in context. Sometimes it's just you and I riffing on the major themes of the week. And sometimes we bring on guests to explain what they are working on. How do they see the industry? So uh, I think we accomplish those two things uh, on a weekly basis. And if I may do a, for instance, uh, one of our guests, uh, Jason Robbins, the founder of DraftKings, who definitely making its way through the industry, uh, sports betting, a big topic of discussion throughout the world of sport. And as you know, you know, Jason he he's looking outwardly for guidance on what DraftKings can become. And it isn't necessarily limited to the sports betting space. He's got eyes out. We talk about Amazon a lot. You know, it started as a bookseller and look at them now. They've been doing, you know, pretty much everything you can imagine. Uh, and some some a lot of parallels there too, right? Where they have a customer. They have, you know, the customer's payment info on file. And, you know, unlike certain other types of tech companies that are advertising uh, driven, um, you know, they're primarily transaction driven. I was reading an an article um, the other day. It was an interview with Jeff Wilkie, uh, who had recently retired when he gave the interview from Amazon. And um, he talked about how they did it. And it was fascinating to me. I was soaking it all in. You know, basically the concept was, they would launch these new efforts and they would completely segment them off from the rest of the business. And uh, for two reasons, one is they wanted to make sure they didn't distract from the core business, but also um, in his words, I believe, I hope I don't butcher this, they didn't want these new things to get swallowed up by the mothership. Um, and it was just so insightful. And you know, they're a great example of one that we look up to and we think one day, hopefully we can achieve some of the types of things that they've achieved. So Jason Robbins talking about looking to become the next Amazon of, no truth to the rumor, by the way, that Jason wants to take bets uh, in outer space. Not yet, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm sure you know, down the line. But we do know that the Olympics in 2028 will be in Los Angeles. And the CEO of LA 2028 is Kathy Carter. Uh, and we had a nice conversation with Kathy about not only what we saw in Tokyo and what may happen in Beijing, but looking past that Paris and LA from a sponsorship and monetary standpoint, despite the COVID troubles, that looking ahead, companies are just bursting at the seams for the opportunity that awaits. And Scott, I'm actually recording this with you. I'm sitting in LA right now. I'm looking out my window uh, at the I-10 and there are a lot of cars on the I-10. There was a part of that conversation uh, with Kathy where we asked what kept her up at night. Um, And traffic, surprisingly, Scott, not one of those things. There's a lot of statistics about what you actually need to do in order to to minimize the traffic. But ultimately, there's also a tremendous amount of, of information about how 
traffic is actually not a big deal during the Olympic Games because people tend to uh, will work with with business owners and and the local uh, local uh, employers in Los Angeles to work on flex schedules and different types of things. So we actually don't think that's going to be a problem, even though obviously that's going to be a talking point between now and 2028. That's not one of the things that ultimately keeps me up at night. There are plenty of times, Evan, where I do like to point out where you have erred in some way on our podcast, or I think that's one of the great things. If I make a mistake or if you make a mistake, we don't fix, we don't edit. This is what you get. And it's okay to make a mistake, <laughs> but we do come back the following week and say, oh, oh I've said this and this is, this is what's actually right. doesn't happen too often, but I will correct you because I don't want you to be out in LA and sound like you don't belong. Nobody says the I-10. I There's no I in interstate in LA. It's just the 10, the 405. That's how you do it in LA. So I have been outed as a New Yorker. <laughs> but with a little work, a little practice, you could become as good as the Milwaukee Bucks. Right now, you are what the Milwaukee Bucks were five to 10 years ago. And <laughs> we discussed that very topic with the co-owner of the team, Mark Lassery, private equity titan, uh, Avenue Capital. So we talked to, to him about a myriad things. Yeah, we the big question we had, he, if you remember, Scott, when they bought the Milwaukee Bucks back in 2014, the price they paid, I believe it was in the $600 million range. $550 million. It was And, and by the at. way, as, as I yeah, laughed at by every sports banker, more people made fun of Jamie Dynan Wes Edens and Mark Lassery for buying the Milwaukee Bucks at 550 than for Steve Ballmer $2 billion on the LA Clipper purchase. They just didn't see it. They didn't have the vision. Meantime, I've got Pfizer Forum. Uh, I've got uh, real estate development going on. That is what the business of sport is about. And Sportico just put out its new valuations, NBA valuations, Scott. The bucks are at $1.86 billion. Uh, so that, that $600 million looking like a, a pretty darn good investment right now. And we asked, we asked Mark, what were you guys looking at? What were you seeing? At one point, I had asked him about Giannis Antetokounmpo, who, who was drafted by the Bucks the year before. He shared with us how he first met Giannis, but more importantly, the growth opportunities that he saw in the Bucks that clearly not a lot of other people saw at that time. We met Giannis, and at the time he was a skinny little kid. Um, and I remember our, you know, the GM at the time ended up saying to me, "You see that kid over there? That kid works harder than anybody anybody else on this team. He's always here, shooting, practicing, lifting weights. He's going to be good." And we're like, "Okay, great." You know, I mean, it's not. <laughs> that was really it. I, I, I wish I could tell you. Oh, that's the reason we did it. What we saw in the team was that the team was last in everything. I mean, it was the worst team in the league. It was out of 30 teams, it was like 30th in ticket sales. 30. I mean, it was everything. The only thing we were good at or the Bucks were good at, I think they were like 14th in beer sales. There was a lot of room to grow. From Milwaukee, let's turn our attention up to Boston, where the Red Sox are once again a winning franchise. And we talk with Sam Kennedy, the president and CEO of the team and of Fenway Sports Group, the parent company. And man, this discussion, more than many that I've heard on other platforms, really nailed the essence of what ownership in, in sports, professional sports, is these days. He said Fenway Sports Group is a platform company. And we asked him sort of, what does that mean? This is the essence 
of what the modern professional sports team and platform company is. Well, at the end of the day, for our fans, it, it comes down to resources. Uh, we are able to invest heavily into our sporting operations. So whether it's the Red Sox or Liverpool, uh, our football team or our NASCAR operation, Fenway Sports Group is a big business. We generate revenues across these different entities and we reinvest those revenues into three areas. One, the product on the field. Two, the venues in which they play. And three, the communities in which we operate. And that's been the model. I remember John Henry and Tom Werner coming to me and some of my colleagues in 2003, believe it or not, saying, you guys have done a great job here at Fenway in terms of selling out the park and advertising and sponsorship, but you're going to work yourself out of a job. You know, you're doing too good of a job. There, there, there's not much more to sell here at Fenway. So let's look to expand and grow. And we thought uh, John and Tom were joking. They weren't. Uh, they very much wanted us to start to think as entrepreneurs, just as team, not just as team operators. And that sort of set the culture for what we've tried to build here over these last 20 years. And there you have it, Scott. And not only is that, as you said, kind of the essence of, of sports ownership, I think that that is kind of the essence of what we're trying to convey here with the Sportacast. The business of sports, the, the, the money, the billions that are sloshing around behind these teams uh, it is so much more than who wins or who loses uh, on a baseball game on a Wednesday night or who wins and who loses on the football field on Sunday. It is so much more. It is about the stadium. It is about revenue streams like real estate. It is about marrying English soccer teams with Major League Baseball teams uh, to, to lift all boats. That is where the sports business industry is in 2021. And that is the education that our listeners getting by listening to the Sportacast. 